It's late Friday night, and you know what that means. It's time for our tired episode. Ten minute read of a story that is sure to help you create the calm that you need and to help you push the week's trials and tribulations out of your head and help you to fall into a peaceful night's rest. This season, my background music to help you relax is music provided by Nature Healing Society. Edward Mills and George Benton, a tale. These two were distantly related to each other, seventh cousins, or something of that sort. While still babies, they became orphans and were adopted by the prince, a childless couple who quickly grew very fond of them. The brands were always saying, be pure, honest, sober, industrious, and considerate of others, and success in life is assured. The children heard this repeated thousands of times before they understood it. They could repeat it themselves long before they could say the Lord's Prayer. It was painted over the nursery door and was about the first thing they learned to read. It was destined to be an unswerving rule of Edward Mill's life. Sometimes the brands changed the wording a little and said, Be pure, honest, sober, industrious, considerate, and you will never lack friends. Baby Mills was a comfort to everyone around him. When he wanted candy and could not have it, he listened to reason and contented himself without it. When Baby Benton wanted candy, he cried for it until he got it. Baby Mills took care of his toys. Baby Benton always destroyed his in a very brief time, and then he made himself too insistently disagreeable that in order to have peace in the house, little Edward was persuaded to yield up his playthings to him. When the children were a little older, Georgie became a heavy expense in one respect. He took no care of his clothes. Consequently, he shone frequently in new ones, which was not the case with Eddie. The boys grew apart. Eddie was an increasing comfort and Georgie an increasing solicitude. It was always sufficient to say in answer to Eddie's petitions, I would rather you would not do it, meaning swimming, skating, picnicking, burying, circusing, and all sorts of things which boys delight in. But no answer was sufficient for Georgie. He had to be humored in his desires or he would carry them with a high hand. Naturally, no boy got more swimming, skating, bearing, and so forth than he. Nobody ever had a better time. The good brands did not allow the boys to play out after nine in summer evenings. They were sent to bed at that hour. Eddie 
honorably remained, but Georgie usually slept out of the window toward ten and enjoyed himself until midnight. It seemed impossible to break Georgie of this bad habit, but the Brants managed it at last by hiring him with apples and marbles to stay in. The good Brants gave all their time and attention to vain endeavors to regulate Georgie. They said with grateful tears in their eyes that Eddie needed no efforts of theirs. He was so good, so considerate, and in all ways, so perfect. By and by, the boys were big enough to work, and so they were apprenticed to a trade. Edward went voluntarily, and George was coaxed and bribed. Edward worked hard and faithfully and ceased to be an expense to the good prince. They praised him, and so did his master. But George ran away, and it cost Mr. Brandt both money and trouble to hunt him up and get him back. By and by he ran away again. More money and more trouble. He ran away a third time and stole a few things to carry with him. Trouble and expense for Mr. Brandt once more. And besides, it was with the greatest of difficulty that he succeeded in persuading the master to let the youth go unprosecuted for the theft. Edward worked steadily along and in time became a full partner in his master's business. George did not improve. He kept the loving hearts of his aged benefactors full of trouble and their hands full of inventive activities to protect him from ruin. Edward, as a boy, had interested himself in Sunday schools and debating societies and penny missionary affairs anti-tobacco organizations, anti-profanity associations, and all such things as a man. He was quiet, but steady and reliable helper in the church, the temperance societies, and in all movements looking to the aiding and uplifting of men. This excited no remark, attracted no attention, for it was his natural bent. Finally, the old people died. The will testified their loving pride in Edward and left their little property to George because he needed it, whereas owing to a bountiful providence, such was not the case with Edward. The property was left to George conditionally. He must buy out Edward's partner with it, else it must go to a benevolent organization called the Prisoner's Friends Society. The old people left a letter in which they begged their dear son Edward to take their place and watch over George and help and shield him as they had done. Edward dutifully acquiesced and George became his partner in the business. He was not a valuable partner. He had been meddling with drink before and he soon developed into a constant tippler now, and his flesh and eyes showed the fact unpleasantly. Edward had been courting a sweet and kindly-spirited girl for some time. They loved each other dearly, and 
But about this period, George began to haunt her tearfully and imploringly, and at last she went crying to Edward and said her high and holy duty was plain before her, that she must not let her own selfish desires interfere with it, that she must marry poor George and reform him. It would break her heart, she knew it would, and so, but duty was duty. So she married George, and Edward's heart came very near breaking, as well as her own. However, Edward recovered and married another girl, a very excellent one she was too. Children came to both families. Mary did her honest best to reform her husband, but the contract was too large. George went on drinking, and by and by, he fell to misusing her and the little one sadly. A great many good people strove with George. They were always at it. In fact, but he calmly took his efforts as his due and their duty, and did not mend his ways. He added a vice presently, that a secret gambling. He got deeply in debt. He borrowed money on the firm's credit as quietly as he could, and carried the system so far and so successfully that one morning the sheriff took possession of the establishment, and the two cousins found themselves penniless. Times were hard now, and they grew worse. Edward moved his family into a garret and walked the streets day and night, seeking work. He begged for it, but it was really not to be had. He was astonished to see how soon his face became unwelcomed. He was astonished and hurt to see how quickly the ancient interest which people had in him faded out and disappeared. Still, he must get work, so he swallowed his chagrin and toiled on in search of it. At last, he got a job at carrying bricks up a ladder in a hut and was a grateful man in consequence. But after that, nobody knew him or cared anything about him. He was not able to keep up his dues in the various moral organizations to which he belonged, and had to endure the sharp pain of seeing himself brought under the disgrace of suspension. But the faster Edward died out of public knowledge and interest, the faster George rose in them. He was found lying and ragged and drunk in the gutter one morning. A member of the ladies' temperance refuge fished him out and took him in hand and got up a subscription for him and kept him sober a whole week and then got a situation for him. An account of it was published. General attention was thus drawn to this poor fellow and a great many people came forward and helped him toward reform with their countenance and encouragement. He did not drink a drop for two months, and meanwhile was a pet of the good. And then he fell in the gutter, and there was a general sorrow and lamentation. But the noble sisterhood rescued him again, and they cleaned him up, and they fed him, and they listened to the mournful music of the repentances, and they got him a situation again. An account of this was also published, and the town was drowned 
in happy tears over the re-restoration of the poor beast and struggling victim of the fatal bull. A grand temperance revival was got up, and after some rousing speeches, had made the chairman say impressively that we are not about to call for signers, and I think there is a spectacle in store for you which not many in this house will be able to view with dry eyes. There was an eloquent pause, and then George Benton, escorted by a red-satched detachment of ladies of the refuge, stepped forward upon the platform and signed the pledge. The air was rent with applause, and everybody cried for joy. Everybody wrung the hand of the new convert when the meeting was over. His salary was enlarged next day. He was the talk of the town, and its hero. An account of it was published. George Benton fell regularly every three months, but was faithfully rescued and wrought with every time in good situations were found for him. Finally, he was taken around the country lecturing as a reformed drunkard, and he had great houses and did an immense amount of good. He was so popular at home and so trusted during his sober intervals that he was unable to use the name of a principal citizen and get a large sum of money at the bank. A mighty pressure was brought to bear to save him from the consequences of his forgery, and it was partially successful. He was sent up for only two years, when, at the end of a year, the tireless efforts of the benevolent were crowned with success, and he emerged from the penitentiary with a pardon in his pocket. The Prisoner's Friend Society met him at the door with a situation and a comfortable salary. And all the other benevolent people came forward and gave him advice, encouragement, and help. Edward Mills had once applied to the Prisoner's Friend Society for a situation when in dire need, but the question was, have you been a prisoner? And that made brief work of his case. While all of these things were going on, Edward Mills had been quietly making head against adversity. He was still poor, but he was in receipt of a steady and sufficient salary as a respected and trusted cashier of a bank. George Benton never came near him and was never heard to inquire about him. George got to indulging in long absences from the town. There were ill reports about him, but nothing definite. One winter's night, some mass burglars forced their way into the bank and found Edward Mills there, alone. They commanded him to reveal the combination so that they could get into the safe. He refused. They threatened his life, and he said, My employers trusted me, and that he could not be a traitor to that trust. He could die if he must, but while he lived, he would be faithful. He would not yield up the combination. The burglars killed him. The detectives hunted down the criminals, and the chief one proved to be George Benton.
A wide sympathy was felt for the widow and orphans of the dead man, and all the newspapers in the land begged that all the banks in the land would testify their appreciation of the fidelity and heroism of the murdered cashier by coming forward with a generous contribution of money in aid of his family, who were now bereft of support. The result was a mass of solid cash amounting up to $500 or more. The cashier's own bank testified its gratitude by endeavoring to show, but humiliatingly failed in it, that the peerless servant's accounts were not square, and that he himself had knocked his brains out with a bludgeon to escape detection and punishment. George Benton was arraigned for trial, and then everyone seemed to forget the widow and their orphans in the solicitude for poor George. Everything that money and influence could do was done to save him, but it all failed. He was sentenced to death. Straightway, the governor was besieged with petitions for commutation or pardon. They were brought by tearful young girls, by sorrowful old maids, by deputations of pathetic widows, by shoals of impressive orphans. But no, the governor, for once, would not yield. Now George experienced religion. The glad news flew all around. From that time forth, his cell was always full of girls and women and fresh flowers. And all day long there was prayer and hymn singing and thanksgiving and homilies and tears with never an interruption except an occasional five-minute intermission for refreshments. This sort of thing continued up to the very gallows, and George Benton went proudly home in the black cap before a wailing audience of the sweetest and best that the region could produce. His grave had fresh flowers on it every day for a while, and the headstone bore these words under a hand pointing aloft. He fought the good fight. The brave cashier's headstone had this inscription, Be pure, honest, sober, industrious, considerate, and you will never... Nobody knows who gave the orders to leave it that way, but it was so given. The cashier's family are in stringent circumstances now, and it is said but no matter a lot of appreciative people who were not willing that an act so brave and so true as his should go unrewarded have collected $42,000 and built a memorial church with it. And so, that is the story for tonight. I'm interested in what you think of it. In some ways... It reminds me of the prodigal son in the Bible. And in others, it reminds me of different people in my life and in those that I care about. But when I look at it, I think that the person who had the best life still was Edward. Because Edward stayed true to himself. 
True, he could have compared himself to George, but he did not. He stayed true to what he believed his principles were. And although that may have gone unappreciated by others, it is what made his soul sing. And he wasn't pure and honest and sober and industrious and considerate for what he was taught. In other words, the Brants used to say that if he were all these things, he would never lack friends, and success in life was assured. Rather, he did these things because he considered success not in terms of money, but in terms of doing what he felt was the right thing for himself and for those that he loved. And until next time, sleep well. Good night.